Good afternoon, or good morning, I guess. Good morning, Digital Wildcatters. We're recording this Monday, May 15th, but you're actually watching this the morning of Tuesday, May 16th. We have a special guest. Now, Mark, help me introduce the special guest, but we've got to frame this. We have traded Colin and, I guess, Kirk. So it's two for one. Kirk. What what trade in baseball history is this? <sighs> is this Bagwell for Anderson? It could be close to that. Although I have to give props to Kirk. His absence is due to his participation in the qualifier for the senior U.S. Open. Wow. Down in Paraline, I believe. Yes, I, I have looked for live scoring. It's not available, especially after the weekend he had with his travel odyssey and, and other things. But uh, he tweeted out this morning his prep was stopping for gas station tacos before he hit the course. Nice. So BDE fans, we have traded Colin and Kirk this week for Sean Maher. Chuck. Thanks for Mark, joining us pleasure. today. Good Always. to have you. Okay, real quick, before we jump in, yes. quick Mother's Day story. I will go first. Okay. I was reminded by my dear sweet mother, who I had dinner with last night, that when I was brought home from the hospital as a little baby, Dad was finishing med school. My crib was in the room that included all of Dad's med school books. And supposedly I was able to stand up and rock the crib so that I could make it move. And every morning, my mom said literally every morning, she would come in. I had rocked the cradle over to Dad's med school books. I had grabbed one certain book and I was reading it each morning when mom came in. Do you know what that book was? <laughs> what? Literally everything about syphilis. I could, now, my parents have concluded <laughs> that it was a red leather book, that, you know, it was red and that's what drew it to me. But right. Yeah. And, and now that, they know that, you. That, that, that confirms that Chuck has the highest awkwardness threshold <laughs> I have ever seen. <laughs> All right, quick Mother's Day story. All right, so quick Mother's Day story. Um, this was the first year I've got I've got two kids, fourteen and eleven, and this was the first year I went to both of them about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. I said Mother's Day is coming up. You know, what are we going to do? <clears throat> and they both had gifts and cards ready for like what they were going to get my wife, and I was like this is really cool if I've graduated to the point where my kids are accountable because I got my wife something on Amazon the day before because I forgot. Nice. <laughs> Strong. You yeah. had, you had parent of the year there until the last <laughs> sentence. Uh, no, there's we'll the, edit that parent out. of the year versus husband of the year. That's right? true. No, you won no, parent of the I, year. No, you no, may no, have, no. you may have finished down ballot on. No. I, I, I would say kids of the year for being so the kids of the year prepared so early. Mine is from, yesterday after doing the same thing on Amazon <laughs> and reminding my son who is, is now past his senior year in high school. So it's that fun downtime that's mostly spent sleeping and having fun with your friends between now and graduation. I reminded him that, you know, he needed to be present mm -hmm. and we needed to get cards and all of that. So we went out Saturday did all that. And of course, Saturday night is usually the night he goes and hangs out with some other friends and they all spend the night at a friend's house. 
And so he texts me late Saturday evening saying, Hey, I think I'm going to be home tomorrow. We're spending the night and I'll get home pretty early. So around 1045, I'm sitting in the family room drinking coffee and he's nowhere to be found. Haven't heard from him. I texted a two word text define early. Ooh, (laughs) Ooh, nice. No, it all went aggressive. It all went fine. Um, but that's, I, I'm going to relay the story of an 11 and a 14 year old being yes. prepared. How many am, weeks, two I'm, weeks ahead? I am keeping all of the children communications quiet. My, I will not fess up or embarrass any children that should be embarrassed on the BDE show. But all right, Sean, you're here and it's awesome that you're here. Thanks. Because big, huge freaking deal happened in pipeline mm-hmm. world. Yeah. As I was listening to this morning on CNBC driving in, one okay, that's how they pronounced it. One okay bought Magellan. Tell nice. us about this deal. Look, I think uh so there's been a lot of talk about the energy sector, whether you're talking about ENP, midstream, uh, in terms of necessary consolidation. And historically, when you think about uh the midstream space, these are long-lived assets they are generally very stable and you've got that with both one oak and magellan these are two very stable businesses with a very with very deliberate management teams um it was not a transaction that one could say was hand in glove like there weren't a lot of direct operational synergies and you saw that with some of the prior deals that have been done uh you had enterprise bought navitas which was a great transaction, energy transfer and enable. Um, that was a public to public. Then you had um, Targa and Lucid, and most recently energy transfer and Lotus. Those all had some strong operational complements to one another in terms of synergies and building out the the core footprint. Magellan and One Oak was unique in that it was two very different businesses, um, two very stable businesses, but it took. Uh, one Oak, which had, call it, three core competencies, and Magellan, which had two reform, two core competencies, refined product and crude oil transportation storage, merged them together. So it, from a One Oak's perspective, it made the company more defensible. It took them out of just the gathering and processing um, narrative, if you will. Uh, a great company, very disciplined, but they they had Bakken exposure, which they have Bakken exposure because they're primarily a Bakken company. Um, and that, I think, was probably cause for some investor angst, justifiably or not. Uh, and then, but when you merge the, the company with Magellan, you've got a very, very stable footprint through the central part of the U.S. And so when you look at the app, when you actually look at the, the map of the pipeline infrastructure that's in place post the transaction, it's very complimentary right up and down, you know, um, the central states. And so now, and they're both Tulsa based companies. So a lot of times when you deal with M&A, there's obviously the cultural fit and, and what are you looking for uh, in terms of making sure that your employees are taken care of, making sure your communities are taken care of. Uh, so this does a lot in terms of solidifying the business structure, the business environment in Tulsa by keeping a lot of people um, employed because there isn't a lot of GNA overhead, except at the very you know top level. 
Stuff I didn't understand that I read about, because I've never been much of an MLP guy. We did a lot of that at at, uh, at Kane, but wasn't my group. Um, there was a whole tax issue right. about how this is going to be taxable uh, to Magellan holders. So what does that mean? Sure. So uh, the, the beauty of the MLP structure, the partnership structure, is you receive current distributions. And those are tax deferred. So the distribution you receive on an annual basis goes to reduce the basis of your investment. You buy a stock at 20, you get a dollar dividend, now your basis goes down to 19. So that's great because as long as you own that partnership unit, you don't have a tax basis or you don't, you don't have to pay taxes on those current income streams. It's only at the time of sale. And so one of the things that became challenging for long-term mid or that becomes challenging for long-term midstream investors is their ability to monetize positions if they've got a very low basis in a security. Um, now with One Oak buying the company, it, it, you have a C Corp buying a partnership. So this is not something where you can do a like-kind exchange and have one partnership go to another partnership, exchange units, and then continue that tax deferral uh, uh, down to your basis, this is a sale. This is not right sale. And so as a result of that, the, the, you'll get $25 in cash and 0.6671 Oak units. Uh, but that is going to be a taxable transaction. So Magellan, which always had a premium multiple from, a, from an MLP perspective, hasn't issued equity since 2010. So one of the things that Magellan did, was really good about was obviously managing their capital budgets, um, managing their business. But by not issuing equity, it meant that all of your unit holders essentially became trapped. It's the prisoner's dilemma. I've got this really great company. It's paying me a great yield. But if I sell it, I'm going to have a big tax hit. Well, now, as a result of the C-Corp buying the partnership, you're gonna you're gonna end up with a tax hit for the LP, and that what that means is it rewrites the basis higher for the acquirer, which allows One Oak to defer taxable income for I think it was three years is what they've laid out in this case, and and this gets to there's a history here in terms of other C corps buying MLPs and pushing tax burdens down to the limited partnership to the limited partners, um, and I don't have any reason to. Um, I don't have any reason that this is accurate or inaccurate, but I would imagine that a big reason for the twenty-five dollar cash component was to help MMP shareholders be able to pay that current income tax liability, uh, and then you you end up with a secure piece of paper to find as One Oak, which is a C corp, and a, a nicely consolidated business. And and One Oak is issuing notes. To pay that cash component, correct. You know, Mark, the, the a significant portion of it. That's that's interesting. You brought that up because when RSP bought Silver Hill, it was the same thing. RSP was C Corp. Silver Hill was a private partnership, and we had investors in our fund because we took a billion two of cash, a billion two of stock. We had investors begging us not to sell the shares and just distribute them because they were like, we just want to keep the tax base. And I had to tell them, no, yeah. you cannot buy 
in effect an asset, right? Because it's a flow through entity. Yeah, that's taxable event. So if I go sell your shares for you and send you cash, you can go buy RSP stock and you may have lost three cents a share or whatever yeah. it costs me to trade out. So and there's great companies that you want to own for a really long time. There's no doubt about it. it, it the, the, the concern becomes when you're not making, when you're not transacting because of concern around a potential tax liability, right? And um, this has been floated in the past, you know, you know, urban legend or, or market history. You know, there are people who have thought about doing acquisitions and the transactions have been shelled or, or shut down simply because there was concern around how would the equity trade post the transaction because of this, this big basis differential, big basis yeah. issue. I, you know, going back to a point you were talking about in, you know, real or perceived about inventory life as it relates to one Oak and the whole Bakken headline or the Bakken exposure. Um, we were talking about before the show, something about, which I think is just fundamental as we get into later life for any of these unconventional plays is rising GOR and, and what that potentially means for one Oak legacy asset base relative to, you know, it's advantaged NGL positioning and, and how robust, you know, that whole segment of the business has been. And, and I think we, we're going to see that elsewhere as we get further and further into this, you know, this runway issue story. Right. I, I think that's right. I think one Oak to their credit has always been, again, very disciplined and very thoughtful in terms of how they've laid out their, their capital programs. Um, they're notorious for um, under promising and over delivering. And, but one of the things that the market just does not appreciate, and I think that the One Oak management teams have tried to do this, is when you start looking at the development of the Bakken, the, the higher GOR ratios, if you're a gathering and processing midstream company focused on the natural gas or the NGL component of that, that volumetric um, ramp up, then you're, you want the higher GOR. It just makes your legacy business that much more valuable, which is how they continue to meet economic thresholds or eco- economic goals and, and operational goals. So it's, uh, they've, got some, they've got a great footprint. Um, so I do think that the, the Bakken risk conversation is a bit over, is overdone. But. So you know, we had Crack in there, which was one of the largest operators, I think pre-COVID, 60,000 barrels a day or so. And at one point, I want to say we had four or five brigs running. Really great operator there. My take on the Bakken was always at $55 oil. We kind of broke even and it was sort of, eh, do we do it or not? At $56 oil, we drilled 500% rate of return wells. And I've got yeah. to think with the yeah. oil field inflation that we've seen, that number's creeping up. So I do, I do think there is a a real worry outside of the GOR issue of just rigs laying down. You know, I mean, it's got to be close. Sure, but I mean, you're also you're you, look, you're starting to see pushback on the producer side as well. Producers are starting to say rig rig rates are getting too high, service costs are getting too high. What that ultimately means, though, Chuck, is that prices have to go up. Right. Yeah. So. I mean, and, and at some point, you know, the, the economic threshold will be met to drill that. Well, the beauty of what you have today, and this gets into the whole consolidation narrative is you've got much, you've got a lot fewer people making those decisions. So you're not competing against 20 
uh, operational peers, two of whom are the same market cap of you and the other, you know, 18 are, are, you know, ankle biters for lack of a better term, right? They're just running around trying to pull a deal. First uh, ankle biter ankle reference yeah. on VE. I, mean, I like but, it. But, but, but consolidation does a really good thing because it puts, it, it, it limits your competitive universe. And if, and if people are operating with a very disciplined mindset, which I think that's absolutely what we're seeing, um, then it's going to lend itself to transactions kind of like this. I think when, when I think about the One Oak Magellan deal, and Mark and I were talking about this before, you can make the case for some m a is one plus one equals three right you have two very strong footprints and then you take a lot of synergies and you know you end up with more i don't know that this is one plus one equals three it's probably more one plus one equals a very solid two uh and the reason why i think that's important is when you go back to to consolidation you know dating back to era the super major which is when i you know started in the banking research world back in the late 90s you had the best acquire or merge with the best, right? You had the good companies found good companies and they found compliments. They found people where you could have cultural fits, you had operational fits, but it lends itself to bigger scale, which improves margin. This is a cost sensitive business. Your point about $55 a barrel versus 56, right? You wanna get as much scale or a much production per employee or margin per employee as you can, and you do that through consolidation. Ultimately, what this develops into, though, is smaller players look around and start realizing that they're not being gobbled up, right? Because One Oak and Magellan just merged. And so somebody who thought that they would be bought by One Oak or merged with Magellan, now they're looking around saying, you know, where do I go now? They try to artificially create um, scale by just taking one company merging with another. So good M&A turns into okay M&A turns into we're getting bigger for the sake of getting bigger, which or, does, or, doesn't or, improve returns. Or the music's about to stop and I need a chair. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it and just to kind of close the loop on that late 90s era of the super majors consolidation, he, what he was referring to, the best of the best, was the, was the Exxon and Mobil mm -hmm. merger that kicked it off really. And if you contrast that with where Arco ended up, which was right after the 1999 Sanford Bernstein Strategic Decisions Conference, if you remember, that was right around the time that The Economist published the drowning in oil and it's going to be no. 10 forever, right? And another little sidebar, Matt Simmons called The Economist and told them not to run with the story and they went ahead and did it anyway. Um, you know, Mike Boland made the pronouncement at the strategic decisions conference at that time, we were entering the last days of the age of oil. And then shortly thereafter, they threw in the towel and sold at the bottom to, uh, mm -hmm. to, uh, to BP. Yeah. So exit question on this story real quick. How's the market treating the stocks of these two folks? Does that tell us anything? Do we have any predictions there? So Magellan was up about 14% coming into, into this conversation. Magellan is a very generally a heavily shorted name in the midstream landscape because uh, people think that it's, people thought it was fully valued. It was hard to garner incremental capital. I mean, Magellan uh, has done a very good job. The returns on capital are great, but um, 
it was up significantly. Not to be not a surprise when you're getting a 22% premium on a deal in the energy patch. Uh, One Oak was down about it's, 9%. It's down a little over 8% right yeah. now. Um, and I think that that's people just digesting what is a fair, fair price. I think that Magellan traded a premium. It was a good company, but again, it didn't, there weren't a lot of sellers because they had a lot of legacy equity holders. Um, and I think One Oak is, uh, and then the other thing, actually, I think One Oak gets out of this, which I, I frankly hadn't thought of was it does bring them closer to the water. Right, so Magellan, Magellan has um, ship channel uh, access and, ex- and exposure. So, if you're trying to monetize that Bakken NGL and you can get closer and closer to the export docks, that's actually a huge win, and that could actually move the needle a little bit in terms of the value add. But and, and pretty significant storage in Corpus Christi as well. Correct. Yeah. So. Yeah. Absolutely. So, look, the market doesn't. The market's beating up One Oak today. Um, I think that you know time will tell, but it's uh, it was a a good deal. It's just one that it wasn't as aha. Right? Enterprise announced the acquisition of Navitas. That was the probably the first big M and A deal. That was three point two five billion dollars, and Enterprise was up that day. It turned out to be a three quarter payout, right? So Enterprise did did pretty well with that transaction. Same thing with Energy Transfer and. Um, and Lotus and Targa and Lucid, like you could make you could make that sense. This is just going to take longer for the market to digest, but they're they're two very very good management teams. And and Pierce, uh, the CEO of of One Oak, is a very thoughtful guy. And you know he just took over the company eighteen months ago again. Um, so he's not doing this thinking that he's he's moving on anytime soon. He he sees some real opportunities here. Gotcha. Important difference in in Navitas and Magellan, I guess, is, or at least the kind of legacy One Oak issues related to the Bakken is that Navitas was uh, Permian pure play. Right. Right. Sure. Sure. We're in a different time and place. I I looked at uh, index performance before coming in year to date and was surprised to see that the Alarian, maybe as a result of this pop, is leading the way. It's the only one that's up out of the OIH. The XOP is actually year-to-date leading the XLE, which is the major's mm-hmm. heavy index, by about 100 basis points. I think 5.5, down 5.5 versus down 6.5. So, actually, that was a little surprising <laughs> to me. I, I think these air pockets that we're, that we're seeing and the intersection of what shareholders want, which is capital discipline and restraint, is something you alluded to earlier is, you know, continues to be significantly bullish for the macro structurally, yeah. you know, and with shareholders reacting or the market reacting to, I think part of this is, you know, it's hard to get away and with a positive reaction. If you're paying a premium, I don't care about kind of the minutia yeah. of the deal, right? This is just the market backdrop we're in. So it's, that's, that's kind of a tough thing. You're paying to a do. 22% premium. People yeah. are, people are going to take exception to that. And, and look, it's definitely the precursor to more M&A because people are going to be looking around trying to figure out what to do. But I would, but take a step back a second. Consolidation is already going on. Companies are buying back their own stock all day long, right? So I, I think that's, that's something that people need to appreciate is if the market isn't going to value these companies for what they bring to the table, then they're going to look around and say, fine, 
we'll own it, we'll acquire it, and we'll we'll take the duration risk because we're sitting here, we see what we own, and we see the long-term value of this. You don't want it, that's fine. Go go trade your five tech stocks. I'm going to take a 9% yield or a 10% yield, and I'm going to hold it for the next 25 years. Yeah, and you and I talked about it the other day on our podcast. The, I mean, nobody's valuing a tail. So. No. no. All right, Mark. Barclays puts out a report on the East African oil pipeline. You guys had talked about that, I think, two or three weeks ago when I was out. What did the report say and what was interesting about that? Yeah, and this is this is a real quick update. We don't need to get into a lot of the details, but this is really one of those lightning rod type of projects. It's been a long-running saga. Total's involved. The Chinese are involved. Uh, it's a Uganda to Tanzania pipeline that has gotten all all manner of pushback from various in, environmental and, and financing groups or stakeholders. The latest one, and the reason we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, was a headline over the prior weekend that Standard Charter had had declined to participate in financing the 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 fourteen hundred mile pipeline, and that was largely due to their statement that it was inconsistent with essentially their their kind of ESG principles, if you will, and, and I'll leave it at that. But interestingly, back in March, Lydia Rainforth, who is the lead uh, European integrated oils analyst, had published a report that was the summary or the findings from an independent fact-finding mission to Uganda and Tanzania after doing a lot of, 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 of prelude work, if you will, reading a lot about the human rights and the environmental impact uh, assessments and aspects of the East African crude oil pipeline, and then going down in a very targeted, uh, independently uh, organized, not, not through Total, talking to various stakeholder groups and then publishing a report around that. And the net of it was that, you know, they were positive, acknowledging the concerns, publishing a lot of good data in the research report, like the affected persons who will be relocated in certain areas. Of course, the numbers that uh, talk about displacement uh, in the in the popular press way over overstate the numbers of people that are affected, and, and certainly to the individuals, it's a big deal. But there has been, for example, in the compensation, the relocation programs, there's already been like an 85% acceptance in both when you combine the people who have been, who are going to be affected in Uganda and the people who are going to be affected in Tanzania. And that's mainly along the pipeline route, right? So if your agriculture and your homestead is upset, you may have to be relocated. Anyway, the point is, is that it was a very thoughtful and independently oriented assessment to get to the bottom of some of these issues and being very balanced about, you know, the, the, the validity of the concerns. But last month, uh, Barclays CEO received a letter that was signed by over 40 activists uh, demanding that the bank rescind the research note because it was, um, opinions were, were, uh, unhelpfully biased. Uh, the oils analysts are unqualified to to have a have an opinion on these issues, and that it was potentially damaging to the reputation of Barclays. So, I don't know that the note's been rescinded. I've got it. I've read it, and I think it's you know I'm, I'm biased to 
you know, to to deep digging equity research analysts. Uh, Dan's Dan Pickering's motto with the shovel that he would hand out is always dig deeper. I think this is a great example of an equity research analyst digging deep on an important issue as it relates not only to the companies that she covers, but also generally what's going on in this constant point of friction between the opponents of oil and gas and doing what's right by certain com- countries economically that have, you know, every right to to develop their sovereign resources and assets and for their own well-being. And again, the point is we can't have a thoughtful discussion on energy. We can't present opposing views. We can't debate those opposing views. You have to take away, I'm sure in that letter it said misinformation or some variation or some. Greenwashing was in it. Greenwashing, Um, there we go. I I just think it's going to be really interesting to see that if a big global bank capitulates and does retract that research note, that's going to be, I don't think they will, but you know, I've been wrong before. I would be, I would be surprised if they would do that because at, at some point Barclays has to understand that their job, this research analyst job is to opine to a fiduciary who's allocating capital. Right. And I think that the good news from what I've seen is, um, at least some of the U.S. banks, <clears throat> and whether it's investment bank or, or otherwise, but you know, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon's been crystal clear on how he feels about the importance and necessity of energy. Right, crystal clear. Morgan Stanley's investing in their energy uh, in their energy business. Jeffries is investing in their energy business. Like at the end of the day, somebody will come pick up the slack. The problem is that the more banks that come out of the system the harder it's going to be for smaller companies to grow and to access capital because the larger banks are going to have different thresholds from, from leverage perspectives. And, and frankly, the larger companies are going to have less of a need because most of them are free cash flow positive. So it, all this does in taking banks out of the equation, whether it's Barclays or it's um, XYZ regional bank, it makes it more difficult for smaller companies to grow and potentially compete and add resource. And it which, raises the cost of capital for everyone. It raises the cost, exactly, for everyone. Which, which raises the cost of energy for everybody out there. I hope that the CEO of Barclays is listening to me right now. And instead of capitulating, I hope he writes a sternly worded letter to those protesters. And, and if, if you can get your hands on the research report, Highly recommended. It's it's a really good read and a great example of of very thoughtful and deep research. I guess uh, you know I would come back to something. Why is fear the right motivator? Why is sending a letter to the CEO of Barclays telling them that their research analysts should be fired and they're not qualified? Why is that the right answer? Why because it we, works? Well, I mean, right? But, but, it's but, not but, right. But, it's effective. It, it, no, but end. it shouldn't. But I guess my point is, it shouldn't work. Like there should, if you, if they took exception to the analyst's work, then they should publish their own rebuttal, which is which is fact. So the, it just yep. gets no, no sorry. Yeah. It just gets to this point of you've got to look at a problem. You've got to look at this holistically. Mark brought up a number of points of these com- these countries trying to do something to improve the lives of their own people. Uh, and you know, to, to benefit from that, from their own volition, like it's their choice. So if, if the groups are coming in and speaking for them, then that's presumptuous and frankly, unnerving. That's not how, 
that's not how we're going to grow and evolve and how we're going to end up with enough energy for another three and a half billion people. Well, and it, I mean, it's actually really simple. When you look at the psychological studies on how to change someone's mind, the three most effective ways are number one, uh, ask questions. That's why the Socratic teaching method is so effective. Number two is make them laugh, not you laugh, them laugh. And third, and arguably the most effective, is to scare them. I mean, you're connecting on an emotional level, so you scare them mm-hmm. with threats and the, and the like. The least effective way, according to the psychological uh, studies, facts and reason. I, I, I will we'll, we'll just hit this other one we were talking about earlier as an example of maybe some of this unity on, on the activism side and the opposition is starting to show a little bit of dissension. And there was a story I just picked up before we came in about the two largest shareholder advisory groups, ISS and Glass-Lewis, are now advising opposite one another on the latest stories about uh, Total's upcoming shareholder meeting, a resolution that a Dutch uh, activist organization called Follow This has put to a shareholder vote for the upcoming annual meeting for Total. And it's essentially what we've been talking about in in the last few weeks, which is Europeans are being either sued or having groups like this put uh, formal resolutions in front of shareholders to go faster in their transition and decarbonization, whatever that means, right? Whereas the companies themselves have been saying from Shell to BP, who have been most notably uh, public about it, we're, we're tapping the brakes here. We're rethinking portfolio allocation as Shell CEO has talked about. We've talked about that extensively as well. So you've got two very powerful shareholder advisory groups, one of which is now saying we're not just going to kind of rubber stamp wrote line up behind this activist XYZ resolution about, you know, accelerating your your path to decarbonization, scope three, Paris Accords, whatever. And so I, I you know, is it is it a single data point or a no. trend? I don't know. Well let's roll let's roll this right into our friend Arjun sent a tweet out Saturday with a link, I believe, <laughs> to the Auto Line After Hours EV Bloodbath podcast. And I mean, are these the two Muppet characters sitting up there just bashing, uh, bashing EVs? I haven't listened to it yet. I the, these are these me. are grizzled veterans and journalists that have been covering autos for a long time. They're all, I think, Detroit guys. I think one's actually in Virginia or Maryland. Um, but there were two moderators and then one Reuters and one Bloomberg um, journalist talking about really the, um, the, the assessment at this stage, where are companies, the, the biggest players in the EV race, where are they with respect to you know, how their stocks are performing, profitability, you know, what are the challenges to getting to these inflection point forecasts that we see, these hockey stick forecasts that we mm-hmm. see in terms of EV adoption. And, you know, they're they're just being very frank about what, you know, what dynamics are out there, what headwinds are out there. One of which is, look, they said Ford's the only one of the big three that's being transparent. I didn't know this about actually publishing their EV division standalone profitability numbers. It's ridiculous. They're, they're it's projected like... to lose $3 billion this year after losing 2.1 last year and almost a billion the year before. Uh, GM is below its, I call it the re-IPO price. It's still amusing to me to 
think of G- GM IPOing in 2009, but GM is now trading below, or at least it was as of last Friday's close, below that 2009 IPO. Um, and there, there were various bits and pieces. It's a fairly long podcast. It's an hour long. I had nothing better to do on a rainy Saturday morning and <laughs> yeah. usually take Arjun's recommendations. And I, I texted him. I asked him, how the hell do you find this stuff? <laughs> and he said, he said, he's been, he's been listening to this for a long time. As you may know, he's talked a lot about being a Tesla owner and, mm-hmm. but he's also been very pragmatic in, in some of the points that, um, that are made in this podcast. And, you know, it really causes a revisit of, fundamental issues like one of my old partners used to say, everybody can hold their breath underwater for a minute. Let's see who can do it for 10. And as it relates to automakers profitability or lack thereof related to EVs, how much tolerance is there going to be for that? And as CEOs and their boards think about the gargantuan capital investments that they have to make to really Mm -hmm. scale up to the level of production it's it's a pretty pretty challenging and daunting set of of headwinds. I mean, I remember back in the day, uh, you know, twenty five years ago, they would talk about if a car model design could last one more year, that was like two dollars a share in earnings or something mm-hmm. ridiculous because they didn't have to retool everything. You're talking about, I mean, electric to to ISIS. <laughs> That's well, really retooling. Sorry, I was, no, just say, I was just going to say, one of the things I, I'm a firm believer in the the all of the above or the energy addition mantra, right? And we're going to need all different sources of things going forward, just based on on scale. But you take the auto industry as an example. Ten years ago, the conversation was how do you increase the mileage with your internal combustion engine. How do you take it from 30 miles a gallon to 50 to 70? And all of a sudden, the, the, somebody flips a switch and efficiency for the, for the ice isn't as important as just going to EV. Now, the board's going to look around. The equity holders are going to look around. The debt holders are going to look around and think, well, why don't you just go back to improving the environment the way that you know how to do it, which is to make your cars more fuel efficient because they're lower weight right now in terms of being able to use aluminum. And so why not improve the fuel efficiency? And sure, are you going to be 100% carbon free? Well, neither is an EV, but that's another story. But at the very least, you can take what you can have and you can make it that much better. And if the government wants to create a bunch of companies that go out and lose money in the orders of magnitude of billions of dollars a year, then let them do that. But to me, it's really hard to justify asking people for money, knowing that they're going to lose. And these are not venture capital firms, right? These, these, these are, the, I mean, seriously, no, right? That's right. The, I mean, yeah. these are large established organizations. And it's like, hey, yeah, go ahead and you just take that $3 billion and waste it. And I mean, that's not the intent. And maybe that's too strong. But at some point, these companies, these management teams are going to be held accountable. And when they continue to lose billions of dollars a year, they're going to underperform the market. Yeah. And, you know, it was, there was another industry recently that lost billions of dollars a year that underperformed the market. And what did investors do? It was energy and they left. Yeah. So you've got to be thinking about things along the longevity. Or, or they said, don't spend that capital. Give it, give it back, back to, us give it back to us. Right. Right. 
All right, so we're going to get out on EVs with my rant, and I've done this way too often, but I'm going to do it again. Because the, the, you're right, the government came in with the IRA and said, it's electric vehicles. They didn't say, hey, however you want to reduce emissions, more fuel efficiency, we'll, we'll give benefit for that. They came in and said, it is electric vehicles. And the reason they did that, and I truly believe this, is they want to move us from cents per gallon buying gasoline to tracking us and we're going to pay dollar per mile we drill and they're going to have a sensor in our car and it's just going to become de facto they track us wherever we go no court order necessary that's how you we're, they're going to normalize paying dollar per mile and the government wants that happening so jason Bourne, i don't know that i entirely ascribed Fair that enough. however it, it certainly is gonna be another reason why i might slow down the purchase of an EV. Um, but if you think <laughs> if you think about this, if you think about the internal combustion engine and, and gasoline, what's the biggest, what is the single biggest tax cost to you? I mean, what what's the who has the largest tax? I mean the federal government. The federal government, federal government right? unless you're in so California. Yeah. So the, the federal government is essentially cutting off its nose to spite its face. It's subsidizing a business that it's not making money on because you don't have the federal tax on your electricity bill. But in right? the IRA, there is a $25 million pilot program for tracking devices in EVs to measure mileage. Okay. And, 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 and we'll bring this up next week since we're running out of time. The new EPA regulations that are related to carbon capture and storage for power generators, which mm -hmm. affects mostly coal and natural gas, obviously, are the kind of end around, right, unelected or non-legislated way to mandate more renewables on your grid. Right. However, if you talk to people who live in River Oaks, who are familiar with the energy industry, maybe they actually are executives in the energy industry, they would tell you that even River Oaks, if you had an EV every three houses, the grid would collapse. Totally. So I mean, so totally. I, your point about the Inflation Reduction Act and, and all that, that, that's all well and good to try to add supply to an equation. But if you, if you add a bunch of supply somewhere and you can't get it to market, then it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. It's like, We've talked about this before. What's the value of a TCF of gas in the ground with no pipelines? It's zero. What's the value of a 10 gigawatt solar farm? If you can't get it to the market, well, it's not 10 gigawatts. Right? Yeah. And, so, and if the grid goes down, and there's another story we tweeted back and forth about Nigeria ordering 12,000 electric buses. Yeah. yeah. Well, their grid demand is four to 12 times the grid capacity. Did and I share my Nigeria story with you? About the monks? Yeah. Reshare it. Did I share it with you? Mm -mm, All right. So. so a couple of weeks ago, I went to a Trappist monastery in Kentucky, Thomas Merton, right. and silent retreat, and it was awesome. But one of the things that, that I learned while I was there was uh, I got to talking with a monk about global energy demand. Nice. Yeah. No, it was pretty cool. So this the Abbey was saying prayers for... The people that were coming in trying to make the abbey more fuel efficient 
we're talking and he shares with me that they have a monastery in Nigeria, which according to all of the publications and press and, and check the box articles has access to electricity. So they're not in energy poverty because they have access to electricity. They just bought them two diesel generators. The reason they bought them two diesel generators was because this monastery in Nigeria gets access to electricity between 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. every day. Nice. Now, <laughs> they go to mass seven times a day, but I'll tell you, no one is up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Exactly. So, so exactly. Nigeria spends yeah. $22 billion on mostly diesel generation. To The grid has failed. The national grid has failed over 200 times in the last 10 years. That's just crazy. And never in all of our talk about renewables do we talk about grid reliability. All right. So I think we're going to talk uh, nickel mining next week. Real quick, Sean, you, I don't know if you've been privy to this, but my girlfriend's British. And she has you love saying that, don't you? She has chastised me and Mark for talking about Europe as kind of this uniblock. And, you know, we're... We're 20 to 30 different countries. They're all very all have, unique. They're, they're, they're unique. Did you know something can only be unique or not? There are no shades. You can't be very unique. You're either Thank one you. of a kind or not. Thank I you. thought I would correct you on I that. I appreciate that. Because I studied that for the SAT, and I haven't <laughs> and, used and that in 37 and, years. And it's not close proximity either. And it's not close proximity. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. No, and so she's actually made a decent point. Yeah. So what we've been doing is we've been closing each show, and we have, we – Originally called it a deep dive on each one of these countries. Our number one fan, Vlad, has said, it's not a deep dive. It's more like a blurb. So we're going to do a blurb. This week, we're going to talk about Greek. I'm th- Greece. I'm going to throw some quick facts at y'all and, and get a reaction. You know, when you look in the 1970s, energy usage in Greece, 80% of it was oil. 15% of it was lignite. Greece has a lot of low-grade coal running around. And they stayed pretty much with that mix until you get into the 2000s where some natural gas shows up from Russia. Mm-hmm. And then, they, then they, they dove into renewables. So when you're looking at 2010, you had oil accounting for, call it 40% of their energy, natural gas around 20, lignite 15, renewables 20, 25, somewhere in there. Uh, you look at 2020; they're up to 35% renewables at this point. So they've really they've really gone all in. They're all, pre-COVID, right before they were only importing about 50% of their energy because they they do have uh, they do have access to to the renewables and then the coal, even though it's declining, kind of over time. Some other interesting stats I'll throw out about Greece, but then I'll get to the punchline. So they have 35% more debt per capita than the rest of Europe. We all know that. We saw the Greek. They're the 16th largest economy in Europe, so they're kind of bottom half. They have an 11% unemployment rate and obviously a big service economy. So why are we even talking about Greece? One, it's Greece. It's Mm -hmm. pretty. Uh, so Fred Willard, the stand-up comedian, do you remember Fred Willard? You, if no. you've seen a picture of him, he's he's been an actor and everything. He's really good friends with my uh, friend T. Sean Shannon, and they would go travel around uh, all over the place. And anytime they went anywhere in Europe, like if they were in Rome and they went to the Colosseum, he'd be like, 
Oh, that's nothing. We got one in America. It's in L.A. It's much nicer than this. <laughs> the Eiffel Tower, all that supposedly uh, got on a roll uh, about the uh, steal it. The freeze of the Parthenon. We got one in Great Britain. It's much nicer than this one here. But no side note. The whole reason we bought up Greece, the whole reason they're actually the largest ship owner. Mm hmm. Uh, country in the world they've got 5500 vessels out there they've got more i think you measure shipping in millions of tons and uh, they have about 20 percent of the world's tonnage out there and what's really important about it and why we just need to bring it up for people to think about one third of all oil moved around in the world in a mm -hmm. greek ship 22 percent of lng greek mm -hmm. ship 16% of chemicals and petroleum products, 14% of liquid liquefied petroleum glass has moved, moved around mm -hmm. in the Greek. Uh, I think it's called the Greek Merchant Navy. Two questions. Yep. One in the renewables, what is the component that is biomass? Ooh, good question. I do not know that. Because Europe, not to generalize, Ooh, I like that. At least in this past winter has been burning quite a bit. I call it the big, the big Traeger grill, right? Yeah. Pellets which, from which Canada. Are, which are exempt from counting those emissions largely. Two, what does the government in, in Greece or what does, you know, what are the, what's the social benefit of having such a large uh, market position in worldwide shipping in I ask that because you look at the debt per capita, those seem to be, you know, maybe it's order of magnitude different uh, scale that we're talking about, but it, that seems to be a little inconsistent or is most of Greek shipping privately held? And you know, what, what is the, what is the taxation around that? Do we know? So, so that's, that's the dynamic and that's the fight. If you are a lender yeah. to the, to the Greek government, I, I'll be it the Germans or whoever is giving them the money or at least demanding some fiscal austerity, you're going, you got a bunch of freaking rich people with ships everywhere, tax the hell out of them. And the rich people, as best I can tell from my reading, have such a stranglehold around the government. Oh, if you start taxing us, we're going to move to the Bahamas or someplace else. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the, the stalemate. And uh, that that seems to raise its head every three to five years. So, very cool. Yeah, Sean, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. It was great. Mark, yeah, Mark, it. great, great seeing you, Mark. As always, good to see you. I kind of like this without Colin and Kirk. Can I? Did I say that with my outside voice? You sign off with a Greek opa. Ooh, there we go. There opa, go. opa. <laughs> Digital Wildcatters, thank you for joining us. If you like the podcast, share it with a friend. Subscribe to it. Let everyone know. We'll see you next week. Peace out.